And you know what? Okay. You know what Charlie asked me today? He saw it on the Bluetooth when I picked him up from school yeah. and he goes, Nate, dad, why is only teach's name on the, on the screen? <laughs> Isn't it your podcast too? I said, well, just wait till that logo comes out. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number six of the Admissions Director's Lunchcast. I am your host, Tej Matil, Vice President for Enrollment at Carroll University. And along with my co-host, Nathan Ament, the Chief Enrollment Officer at Loyola University, New Orleans, we are here to airdrop relevant content on college admissions topics. Nathan, how are you? Tej, I'm very well. My name is Tej I, and I made a promise that by episode six, I was going to get it right. Well, there's always number seven. All right. Well, I think we're both excited to be here today since we are discussing fly-in programs and we have some truly excellent guests to, today to help us out. Tej, would you give us a reminder real quick about the format of the LunchCast? Yes. Each week, Nathan and I, along with our guests, one influencer and one practitioner, will discuss a topic that is directly related to recruitment and admission. Our hope is that by the end of your lunch hour, you, the listener, will have a good enough handle on the topic that you can implement tactics quickly, maybe even this afternoon. Have you started to get hate mail yet from the admissions counselors that are getting all the work? I you know. Tuesday afternoons, everything just goes downhill for them. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty bad. All right. Well, who will be joining us this week to discuss fly-in programs? Nathan, I am. I have been so looking forward to this, as you know. This week is our influencer guest. We have Carmen Lopez, the executive director of College Horizons, based in Pina Blanca, New Mexico. And then as our practitioner guest, we have Michael Decker, who's the regional recruitment director at Loyola University, Maryland, but he's based in San Diego, California. Nathan, I just want to jump right into this. Should we set the table on our topic? Yeah, let's go for it. So, Tiggy, we're going to be discussing fly-in programs, and I think we have um, two gr great guests that are going to actually give us two very different perspectives based on the questions we've given them. Um, I think the two kind of tentpole topics that I know we want to discuss today are fly-in programs for students, the different type of fly-in programs for students, and what the initiatives and the goals of those should be, and then also fly-in programs for school counselors, subsequently what the goals and initiatives should be for that. So. Um, what are you looking forward to the most today when we talk to our guests? Yeah, definitely. There's two things. You know, Michael Decker is just so skilled and experienced at hosting these fly-in programs. And I, I really just want to pick his brain on the best way to set them up, to structure them, to manage them both before, during, and after the event. Uh, he's just got so much to so much to bring to us. So I'm I'm excited to hear from him. And then yeah, Carm. Carmen. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think we're both overly excited about Carmen. 
I think as we're looking, you know, you and I in the chief enrollment officer roles are really looking at budgets for next year. I know with COVID, that's going to be really interesting. But um, I think as we continue to put uh, focus on DEI initiatives, um, how we increase diversity, how we go about those different programs and what type of funding we have for that, I think it's going to be very relevant to um, talk to Carmen today about um, basically hear from the from the student side as she gets feedback from her students when they go on these programs, what's effective, what are the takeaways, and what are some good lessons to learn for the colleges um, for these students. She, for a lot of her students, I'm guessing, um, based on conversations we've had with her before, um, have not necessarily been on a plane before. And so this is a brand new experience from many different angles. That's spot on. You know, Carmen, in 2017, she won the Excellence in Education Award from NACAC. And I remember being in the audience and she took the stage and just commanded the room and speaking so passionately and powerful about white supremacy, racism in the college admissions process and the responsibility each of us have to play our role in, in fixing things. So I'm really excited to also hear her talk a little bit more about um, social justice, racial equity, what we need to be doing in admissions, and how fly-in programs can be a part of that. All right. Well, I think that's a good segue. So let's go ahead and get right to our guests. So first, we're going to have um, our interview with Carmen Lopez, uh, followed by our interview with Michael Decker from Loyola, Maryland. And as always, we'll see you on the other side. Well, Nathan, as we continue this conversation about fly-in programs, I am so thrilled to have Carmen Lopez here with us. Carmen is currently at College Horizons, and we are so fortunate to have her. Carmen, welcome to the LunchCast. Hello, it's great to be with you. Carmen, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself in your current position? I'm Carmen Lopez, Executive Director of College Horizons which is a national college access organization that services American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian students from across the country. And in addition to doing college access work through what is called our Summer College Horizons program, we've also built two other programs uh, that work with our students. Uh, the second program is called the Scholars Program, which is our uh, college well-being and success uh, program where we work with students in college and to prepare them for graduate studies. And the last program, Graduate Horizons, is our pre-graduate program to help Indigenous students access uh, professional and graduate programs. So we've essentially built out now a program that will work with um, Indigenous students from high school all the way up to the PhD and offering support throughout. So that's, um, that's, that's, the program side of what we do. How I've gotten to College Horizons, um, it's a full circle that I'll give a brief introduction, but I was in my first teaching position after college uh, at the Native American Preparatory School in Rowe, New Mexico. It was a brand new, beautiful school that was 
bringing together um, indigenous ways of knowing and being and uh, Western ways of knowing and being. And it was this great kind of experiment in what could be the new Indian education of the 21st century. And that is where I met Dr. Whitney Laughlin, the director and founder of College Horizons. And she was our high school college advisor there. So later on, though, after I finished teaching, I went on to higher ed administration and directed the Harvard Native American program. And that's where I reconnected with Whitney and we hosted College Horizons on Harvard's campus a couple of years. And then um, soon after that, I was ready to head back west uh, to raise my family out uh, closer to Navajo Nation, my homelands. And then that's when Whitney reached out to say, um, I'm, I'm ready to hand this off and would you be interested? And, and that's when I became the director uh, in 2009. Fantastic. And Carmen, for any, any of our listeners who don't know, the College Horizons program is just as good as it gets. Uh, you do such fantastic work. So thank you for that. Thank you. So if I can get to the first question, what do you think it means to a student when they are invited to a fly-in program? I, I think... I think it's very exciting when when students receive an invitation. Um, there is a confidence boost, I, I think, to them. Um, but but I've also this is the interesting part as we're looking at fly-in programs. I, I think they've changed quite a lot in in the ten years I've been at College Horizons, and maybe recently too in the last five years. And and I think there's some important. Um, I think distinctions that we need to be thinking about this, particularly when we're using fly-in programs for diversity outreach, and then when we are tying it to um, expectations of potential match academically. So there's these the the movement that we've seen is now this pre-screening. On the one hand, I understand we want to be uh, bringing students to a college campus that has the academic merits and uh, is, is a strong candidate to potentially be reviewed. But there was a time when students didn't have to do such pre-application processes. And that'll be my criticism of, of how far we might swing to to be really turning it into this demonstrated interest group, which is I don't think what should be the intention of the fly in programs. Uh, they used to be a little bit more open and accessible to um, uh, a larger group of students uh, to to explore college campus. Um, but overall, I do think that when a student now has to apply and then does get invited, that there is this excitement, this energy, this boost to their confidence um, that they're going to be able to explore college. And speaking again from you know a, a community-based organization, one working with um, underrepresented students, first-gen, low-income, um, this is pretty huge to be invited and potentially to have that um, trip paid for and and for a student to be able to fly across country we still have students that come to our in-person program that that's their first time getting on an airplane so this can be a big deal to a student and the family carmen 
so you you hear from students in a way that that on the admission side of the desk we don't get the the same type of feedback from what you've heard from students what is the difference between a good fly-in program and a bad fly-in program for the the students that talk to us about their their fly-in program i i honestly don't hear too much about what um what might not have gone well um, but I can tell you, though, from listening to them tell us what went well and what was exciting about the, the opportunity um, in order to improve our programming, that I can share with confidence. I think that what students really enjoy, of course, is being with other students. Um, the, the overnight stays with the, the mentors on campus so that they can get that student insight from a real college student without us as adults. A lot of times that's the most important part is for uh, us as adults to step out of the way. We create the space uh, to let the students engage and ask the questions that they want to ask um, and give them some of the information. But it's really um, the, the college students that make these trips so important uh, because the students walk away really understanding what is it that's uh, interesting about this university? I think also when students are trying to compare after they've done a couple of fly-in programs, it's really interesting that they are coming down to some of those um, gut reactions and the feelings. So they're already kind of discerning that, okay, this college has these kinds of uh, facilities, this type of access to great professors. So they're realizing, okay, these things are about the same on a college campus. Now I'm coming back to what is it that I felt comfortable on the campus? Who did I see on the campus? Uh, do they reflect someone like me? Can I, um, do I feel like I can fit in here? Uh, do I think that I can make some good friends here? Um, I, I think that those are the things that students walk away with um, after after getting experience with a couple of, of, of visit programs. So along those same lines, Carmen, I mean, many of these flying programs, and you alluded to it earlier, are designed for DEI initiatives, right? They're designed mm -hmm. to recruit low-income, first-generation students of color. Um, any stories or reactions um, that you've seen from the students when they when they sort of figured that out, or do this? Let me ask a follow up question to that, maybe a two parter. How do they feel like if their eyes wide open going into that? How do how do they how do they take that? Um, what's the reaction either going into it or coming back from it? Yeah, so I, I think it's really important um, that there are specific programs to increase diversity. Um, you know, this again. The, the pandemic and um, the racial and social justice movement that Black, Live, uh, Black Lives Matter has helped to usher in and bring and elevate conversations that we were having prior. Now we're, we're all looking at it in a, in, in a new way. And, and with that in mind, it's, it's that we cannot solve racialized issues until we have racialized programs. Now, that, that, what I mean by this is that sometimes we try to create these, these one-size-fits-all solutions to diversity when we have got to break down and look at what is it within diversity, equity, inclusion 
that we want to focus in on and prioritize. And then you create the programming that will help with the outcomes. So this is the part that we have to not be afraid to create those programs that address certain racial inequity issues in higher education. I think that prior to the pandemic and this, um, the racial social justice movement that we're in, we have skirted around that. We've used DEI as this broad um, shield and maybe excuse. And now what's been, what's been pulled away, I hope, is the realization to say, if we're really gonna focus on educational equity, we have to understand the role race plays within it. And we have got to create uh, programs and solutions that directly address it. So overall, the reason why the diversity fly-in programs matter is that we have to have specific programming that focuses on students that we want to belong on our campus. You have to create it. Uh, they need to see that they can fit in, that there's other students like them, that there are other administrators and staff and professors on that campus like them that share a story, a common story. And this is the movement that the, that the colleges are trying to get after as well, is to build up um, that cohort of students so that they do feel that they belong. Now, the best types of DEI programs are both built with the specific diversity programming and then programming that fully integrates that student with everybody else that's there. So when you bring these two together so that they don't feel that they are these special students that are only coming in for this, they need to see themselves as any other student on campus. So you've got to, I think, higher ed colleges, we have to learn how to balance both. Um, you bring them in because uh, it is addressing inequity that exists on our campus. And then we are also welcoming them into the entire um, community to say, you know, is this the place that you feel you can contribute and do well as a student? So we need to do both and at the same time. I really like that sentiment. And I feel, at least in my experience, and I, a follow-up question here, my experience, the financial literacy program, either for an early, like a sophomore or junior, or really getting down to working through some budget worksheets or financial aid, it seems like finances mm -hmm. is a little bit of the equalizer here, mm -hmm. um, regardless of race or ethnicity, um, but that you can have that, that's sort of the tide that binds a little bit, especially when it comes to low income first generation students. Um, they all will get in the same room together and feel like, okay, we're all in this together. Um, and then you'll have other low income um, white students or whatever else. Um, that's where it sort of starts. Um, but then if you have, um, you know, I really like what you said about staff members or faculty members that look like them, um, <laughs> either leading these sessions or working directly with them to counsel them individually or whatever else. It seems like finances is usually a good starting point um, that everybody is concerned about because most all families are concerned about finances. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. You know, and I think even even when I think about College Horizons, it's a diverse group of students that we're working with as well. Mm-hmm. We don't have an income threshold, although the, the majority of our students are Pell eligible or twice Pell. Um, but but I am working across, you know, 70 different tribal nations. So culturally, um, you know, gender, um, you know, sexual orientation, uh, cultural uh, as well cultural, um, um, uh, cultural ties from those that are, you know, kind of born and raised and steeped in cultural understanding and knowledge to those students that don't know much, uh, because of the history of assimilation. And so it, it's all about storytelling. I mean, that's what you're getting at is, is when we begin to ask the, the basic questions about, tell me your story, you know, uh, where, where are you from? How did you grow up? And who, who's your mentor? And, you know, making it so that the, the students can relate with one another and then relate to the, the other adults in the room who will say, you know, I'm a first gen student. When, when you hear that from a professor, uh, you know, that's the other uh, at College Horizons, Tej, you might remember. Um, uh, one of the sessions that we have is for a professor to do a, a lecture to the students. So I, I want the students to, to hear, to see a professor, a real professor, to hear them, look at a syllabus, you know, and then I do this Q&A with the professor afterwards. And, and I ask them the same questions of, you know, um, how did you apply to college? How did you decide where you went? And there are great stories from professors and, and some who said, you know, I'm a first gen student. I came from a single um, single parent home. It was just my mother who, who did this for me. We had one professor tell us about, you know, failing a class in college. I mean, it really, um, it, it really helps uh, students to relate when we kind of can demystify all of these things about the, the college process and then even um, our professors can relate to students when we kind of take off the basic professor hat and say, what was your favorite class in college or what was your least favorite or, you know, it, it's that storytelling that allows, um, I think, allows for a great program where, where students can dig deeper beneath the basics of, of the college and, and really say, this is the place where I feel I belong and that I can do well. Is there anything you're working on this spring that you're particularly excited about? Teej, I'm, I'm working on so many things. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, we're, we're um, you know, we're preparing for our, our next summer program that, that will be launching remotely. Uh, and and with that, we're we're excited to expand some of the the work that we do to make it more accessible. So, you know, this is always important to me that that the things I recommend to colleges, I'm also talking about as my own institution. That we need to do the things that we're asking others to do. And in terms of making College Horizons um, more accessible, we're going to be offering some open enrollment programs um, this summer that's going to sit alongside our, our, our traditional College Horizons program to share what we do in our large groups with a larger audience of Native students across the nation. So I'm really excited to, 
to to open up our doors more to to students that might not come through our traditional application process. Um, so that's one one major um, initiative that we're going to be working on for this this coming summer. That sounds really exciting. I I'm I will be watching from afar. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> Carmen, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yes, they can visit our website, collegehorizons.org, or they're welcome to email me directly at carmen at collegehorizons.org. Thank you so much, Carmen. You're welcome. Thank you. Just jumping in quickly in between our guests, I want to give you a heads up that on episode eight, we are going to have an announcement that that I'm really excited about. Uh, one of our guests has agreed that just for our listeners, uh, there'll be an opportunity to uh, win a training program for your staff that you can choose to bring back to your campus uh, at no charge. So it's a fantastic opportunity. Stick with us and you'll get more details in episode eight. Well, Tej, I'm overjoyed today to welcome Michael Decker to the podcast. Uh, Michael Decker is the Regional Recruitment Director at Loyola University, Maryland, based in San Diego, California. Michael, welcome to the Lunchcast. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Michael Decker and I go way back. We first met each other and worked together at Loyola, New Orleans. Um, we did quite a few fly-in programs, because that's what we're talking about today. Um, but first, before we get to that, Michael, why don't you give uh, the folks a little bit about your background and some of the experience you have? Perfect. Well, I think if you haven't guessed already, I'm born and raised in New Orleans from my accent and graduated from Southeastern Louisiana University, where I think like most folks started in um, admissions as a tour guide and then kind of went up through the ranks. And after Southeastern left there, went to work at Loyola University, New Orleans, did some fly-in programs there, and then actually left, went over to UCSD at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and did a graduate fly-in program, and then um, went back to work for Loyola again as their West Coast Regional since I moved to San Diego. And about three years ago, I just switched over to Loyola, Maryland, and I'm their Director of Regional Recruitment. And lately, I've been working with their Counselor Advisory Board in our fly-in program um, there. We have a couple different fly-in programs, but that's the one I'm um, kind of spearheading. Great. Well, we're excited to talk to you about that today. Um, since you've coordinated quite a few of these fly-in programs and a wide variety of these programs, uh, can you tell us? I know it, it might might be difficult to choose one, but what's your favorite one? And if you don't have a favorite, um, maybe how would you put a perfect one together, if that makes sense? Yeah. I personally think if I had to pick, I do love a student fly-in or a student program, but I really love a high school counselor program. I think those programs, when you're thinking about that program, what do you really want to get out of that program? I know you want to, I think before we talked, you were like, Michael, what makes a perfect program? And I think each school that's going to be different. Is it that you're trying to get a student from a, for a particular major, and that's why you're bringing a high school counselor in? Or is it because, for example, for Loyola, New Orleans, we wanted folks sometimes from different parts of the United States and the world. So sometimes we focused our, um, a program on regional recruitment and did California. 
and only flew California counselors in. Other time we did a, times we did a mix of like the Northeast and international. Um, so we did a lot of different ones at Loyola New Orleans, and I liked that. I liked it for two reasons. One, it got us different students from different parts of the United States and the world. And two, for people that were planning the program, we were constantly kind of having to reinvent the program. So it was fresh for us and for the college counselors, which was kind of cool too. Michael, do you think you, you touched on it a little bit, but are fly-in programs more effective for school counselors or are they more effective for students? I personally think you're going to get more bang for your buck when it's a, a college counselor coming out, because if that student flies out to your campus and doesn't fit, that student's not going to come. But if that college counselor comes and gets the vibe of your campus and sees what that community is like, that college counselor is going to go back to their high school campus and start thinking about the personalities or the vibe that she, she or he got off of our campus and going back to their high school and trying to find students um, that are like that. So you're going to get more of an opportunity instead of the one and done you're going to have a college counselor that can talk about it, not just that year, but for years to come also. One of the things I noticed when we were doing the fly-in programs, especially at Loyola New Orleans, is data was key to making this program successful. We realized that most people that attended our fly-in program were going to go for about three years, four years, sending us applications, trying to get a student to come to Loyola. After that, the high school either had that, that feed into our school or they didn't. But we needed that data and that buy-in so we could continue to, to continue to upgrade our, our fly-in program. And that was key when we'd go to the board or when we'd go to the president asking for money for these types of particular programs. Hey, I, this is what the, how successful they are. This is where we're getting students from because we had this fly-in program. And then the really great thing about it is, especially with social media and message boards, um, or message board, social media with Facebook, college counselors start posting right away the minute they step foot on your campus about how wonderful your campus is if you're doing a successful program. So that's another perk. You mentioned, and I, you know, back to the New Orleans connection, um, and we see this a lot on just campus visits, period. Everybody, you know, has that hook. They want to come to the city. Um, do you, did you ever find, you know, the cynicism in me as the VP essentially in that role, um, it's always trying to make the budget work, but did you see any situations where maybe somebody felt a counselor was taking advantage of the situation and trying to get that free, free experience? Or did you really think it was a pretty authentic, um, experience and folks were truly interested in learning more about the school and the city? I think it really boils down to your team and what your team once out of this what once out of this program a lot of mm -hmm. times what we're doing is when we're on the road in the fall we're watching a counselor or i'm going into that high school and seeing what that community at that high school looks like to see if that high school will fit well on our campus and when i'm doing that i then will sometimes ask the counselor hey have you ever thought about coming on our fly-in program if they say, hey, I thought about maybe coming to Baltimore, then what I do is I say, you know, I'm going to recommend you for our program, but I'm not the person that has the final say. I do that for two reasons. I do it, one, because that way you'll know, hey, do they have bandwidth? They might say, you know, one of our college counselors is out for the next on paternity leave or maternity leave. 
so they won't um i can't come this fall but i'd like to come next fall or the other reason i like to do that especially if you have newer counselors that are going to be high school like recruiters that are going to be recruiting those high school counselors i want them to be able to ask whoever at that high school but guess what sometimes you're not meeting with the director of that high school college counseling office so even though that counselor you met with might be great we're going to offer that invitation to the director of that high school and then if that director chooses not to come then they can bump it down to whoever else they would like in their office to do um, and i think that's very helpful and then the other key is sometimes i notice a lot of times i would look at the feeder schools that we had and when there was a drop in numbers or applications those would be the feeder schools i would look at and say why was that why did that drop happen did the college counselor who was there that loved loyola did they then decide to move on to another job and now i need to bring that counselor in to make sure we keep that flow of that pipeline of applications michael switching gears a little bit what works best for planning do you think it, it is a dedicated staff member or is it a, a team approach if you can kind of talk through the pros and cons from, from i've what done it seen. both ways i've done it when i'm the one-man show and i've done it with the team and i've led the people that had to run the program as a, as a team or as that individual if i would give any advice have one point person who is in charge of everything but they lead a committee so there can be a committee that one person's in charge of students, one person is in charge of transportation and lodging, one person is in charge of speakers, and then maybe one person is in charge of um, just the staff and making sure people are getting where they need to be, those types of things. There are a lot of moving parts, especially when you're thinking about doing a multi-day program. And the hardest part I noticed was that team leader or the person that is actually in charge of this program cannot be the host of this program. Okay. So what we always would try to do, and I usually was one of the hosts because I was flying in, the host is the person that's the front man. You know, that's the person that's on the bus with them or in the back of the room when they have a question or if they need direction someplace. Or a lot of times they'll come and say, sometimes, especially when they're traveling from afar, the time change gets to them. So all of a sudden we're in the middle of having lunch, but they're used to having breakfast. How do you kind of help that person through that? Maybe I need to go run, get them a cup of coffee. So that host kind of guides them and is their contact. Uh, I don't want to say babysitter, but it's kind of like we're babysitters at times. <laughs> and then that point person or the, the lead person of the committee, that's the person that I can text or send a message to that says, this is where we are. We need 10 more minutes. We're running late or the bus isn't here. So it always looks like it's smooth sailing the whole time. Can you just expand just a little bit more? You said the the person in charge of planning can't be the host. Can you just flesh yeah, that out just a little so, more? I always say, if you think about it, I grew up in the restaurant industry. So I waited tables all my life, that type of stuff. I realized the best events or the best days when I was at work was when there was a front of the house person and a back of the house person. So when I talk about that host or that committee or that team lead, the host is the person in the front of house or in the front of that restaurant, making sure everything runs smoothly. But guess what? There's always that back of house person that is working just as hard to make sure that tour guide or those presentations or that student panel is there 
ready to go when I walk in with 25 or 30 high school counselors. You know, there's nothing worse when I say we're going into a panel and you walk into the room and there's not a student panel waiting for them. That behind the scenes person is going to help make that happen. And you have to have trust, you know, the, the behind the scenes person has to trust that Michael's going to show up at one o'clock for that student panel with 30 people. And I have to trust when I open that door, that student panel is going to be there with my team lead. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the, I think that's the right approach. Um, you can't plan for everything, but certainly thinking about almost all the worst case scenarios. And I did call you doom and gloom, so I will own that. <laughs> but it, but it was the right way to think about it. It was definitely the right way to think about it and to plan for all the worst case scenarios. So then you felt good when, when everything ran smoothly. So at the end of the day, if you had to choose, uh, again, I'm going back to budget a little bit here, but if you had to choose between a fly-in program, um, we've been talking a lot about the school counselor programs, but if you had to choose between a fly-in program and or possibly holding an event in your or two in your territory, like an admitted student reception or let's say a counselor, counselor breakfast or a counselor happy hour, um, you know, if you only got so much budget to go around, um, which would you choose and, and maybe a couple pros and cons of both? I think when it comes to regional re receptions or drive-in programs, I think you can get the same effect. I have seen students do it very, or students, I've seen um, staff members do it very well. For example, I know um, of a drive-in program where it was hosted in the ballroom and then the, the school had a phenomenal football team. They actually had the marching band come through that program in the middle of breakfast. It was amazing. Confetti cannons. It really felt like they were on campus. And I think when it's either a fly-in program or a regional drive-in reception or drive-in program, it's what is that wow factor? Where is it the band that comes marching through? Is it that stellar student that you flew over to meet with that fam with those high school counselors? I think the pros and cons, a pro of having that regional reception is I always double book them. So I'll do a high school fly-in program for the day. And then in the evening, I do a student reception. So you can do get more bang for your buck. The downfall for that program is you don't get to see campus. You don't have them walking on campus mm -hmm. and seeing that community. But then the plus side, is, plus side is I didn't have to fly 35 people across the United States. So I think it just depends. The other thing is I always like to share is weather is key. You know, Baltimore, Maryland, we have about four seasons. Do I really want to fly people to campus in Baltimore in the middle of December? Or do I want to wait till spring? You know, I would rather in that December, if I have that December window, I'd rather fly to them out here in California. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you, had, you definitely have to lean in um, to your seasons and or um, just, you know, I worked at an institution that was in the Upper Peninsula and we took uh, counselors up there in the middle of February. I thought they were crazy <laughs> when we first started doing that, but they really got the full experience of what students would actually experience during that time of year because they embraced the weather and it was part of their culture at the end of the day. So um, I would not want to bring college counselors 
to New Orleans in July. That would not probably be a good idea from our standpoint. Um, but I agree with you. Weather is key. Just like any other events you would hold on campus, uh, weather is key. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation as always, Michael, and I appreciate you giving away some of your secrets and giving some advice. Um, anything interesting you're working on right now, maybe not even related to counselor flying programs, but anything you're working on right now that you want to tell our listeners about and maybe another hot tip, and then how can folks get in touch with you if they have any other questions um, about flying program? Sure. One of the things that, um, I don't know if it's so much a hot tip, but counselor advisory boards, I'm a part of that also. So we have a 10-member team um, of high school counselors that come and give us feedback on everything from, hey, what does our tour look like to do you like this view book or what do you think about um, this particular part of our open house? Uh, and I really enjoy that part. And the great thing is if you're doing these fly-in programs, there are gonna be certain counselors that really take an interest to your campus. They'll be the perfect people to invite back for their for your counselor advisory board. And if you wanna get more in touch, if you'd like to get in touch with me, um, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. It is, well, LinkedIn, and then it is Michael Decker. I think it's Michael M. Decker. Or you can always just email me at mdecker at loyola.edu. Great, Michael. Really appreciate those tips. And I would also wholeheartedly agree with your recommendation about a counselor advisory board. It's another really, really good recommendation. Thanks so much for joining the LunchCast. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Well, Tiggy, how great was that? Uh, two very passionate guests today, two great interviews, um, so much information um, out of both of those. And I think we'd accomplish what we wanted. What if we wanted to get a real microscope on flying programs for students and a real um, deep dive onto flying programs for uh, school counselors. So what was your favorite part of those interviews? You Obviously, just I could just sit at the feet of Carmen Lopez and listen to her talk for endlessly. She's there's just right. so much wisdom she has. Uh, so just taking everything she had to say in was, was fantastic. And then with Michael, um, man, he just, he just, he's got it. He knows what he's talking about. And I've seen it. That's the funny part. I know you have um, experience with Carmen. I've actually never um, participated directly in a college horizons program. It's on my bucket list to do yet in my career. Um, but being on the ground and having run programs with Michael, the story he told her, the analogy about um, the front of the house and the back of the house and, and equating it to the restaurant business. You know, we were both taught early on, I think, by someone at Lawrence, um, that customer service really is probably the name of the game and treating families and students better than nobody else. He really embodies that and and knows how to organize that and find the right roles when it comes to running those type of events. And I've seen it in person. The first event I actually ever had run with him, I was only on the job literally two weeks at Loyola in New Orleans, hadn't 
had spent, you know, no more than three days in New Orleans, not including NACAC, you know, you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I find myself at this, you know, mansion in the uptown neighborhood and it's elaborate party and just watching with amazement at how um, this person runs these events and how he had everything down. Um, and I really felt uh, just really lucky to be working and learning from him um, and stepping into this, you know, it was January middle of the cycle and this had been planned and he had been such a big part of it. So, and then, and then Carmen really, um, I hope our listener really took away from um, Carmen, what, what we both are hoping for and that we can move the needle forward. Um, I'm providing access, um, providing very relevant programming uh, for students, students of color, students from low income um, areas for a, Pell eligible students, first generation. Um, I think this is definitely going to need to be um, continue a conversation that we build these things into a budget, into a plan. I I think the key takeaway, and we've kind of had this theme running through the lunch cast. You have to do what's right for your institution, mm-hmm. and you have to do what's right and work within the means that you have within the budget. But that you you can do something right like even if you don't have a big budget there's still something you can do at the end of the day you know a key takeaway that i i have i heard from carmen a charge for us on the admission side to take a step back and and you're right we have to do what's best for the institution but to to reconsider the um, fly-in criteria you know she told us there was a time when you know you didn't have to essentially be pre-admitted to get on a fly-in program and i i understand how those policies would have come come to be i I get it, but I, it made me think twice. It it really did. That I think you can provide both types of programming, right? I think like we, we've talked about, it comes down to resources. Like you said, I understand why schools do that. Um, but I keep coming back to maybe doing a bus trip for some local students or, you know, you, it, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? Mm-hmm, at the end of mm-hmm. the day. All right, Teej. Well, another great episode. Hard to believe that was episode number six. We are really chugging along here in this season, but a great, great set of guests, valuable conversations. So that's going to do it for us. I'm Nathan. I am Teej. And that was the LaunchCast. Thanks, guys. Hello and welcome back to episode number three of the Admissions Director's Lunchcast. I am your host, Tej Matil, Vice President. I forgot if it's over four. I always get that wrong. <laughs> Just read it, man. I, okay, the, scr- <laughs> the, the, the screen map. is over there. The microphone is right here. I don't know what you want from me. Uh, okay. All right. Take two, Tiggy. <laughs>